Thank you so much for tuning in to the Hope Church Sunday Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged, blessed, and motivated to walk out the gospel as you hear this message by Heath Adamson. So um, if you have your Bible, let's go to John chapter 6. And um, in a moment, we're going to look at a story, a true story that really happened. And if I could boil everything I'm about to say down to one word, it would be the word contentment. So what I would like to talk to you about today is the role contentment plays in um, the miraculous being demonstrated in our lives. Okay, so in 1960, there's a guy named Edward Lorenz. He was uh, a meteorologist at MIT, and he was in a lab conducting experiments on computers, and his purpose was to write some software and create a computer program to simulate weather patterns, okay? So for the 0.2% of those of you in the world that care about meteorology, this is for you, right? So what he would do is day after day, he, he went into a lab, and he's basically plugging in numbers to predict what weather will look like in a few days. So I'm thankful for this technology because when you turn on your TV or you look at your app, um, whenever a hurricane is coming, um, we can anticipate where a hurricane is going to strike land, primarily because of a lot of the work Edward did back in the day. So it was beneficial. It was impacting. Well, one day he's in the lab uh, conducting his experiments, and a few things happened. He became busy. He became distracted. And rather than plugging into his computer the number point five zero six one two seven. He rushes it, and he plugs in the number .506. To put that into perspective, uh, the number he leaves off is over, uh, less than one one-thousandth of a percent. So it's really not a big deal. It's a fairly small number. So again, rather than plugging in .506127, he plugs in .506. He gets up from the lab, goes and does a few things. I'm sure if he's like the rest of us, grabs a cup of coffee, comes back into the lab. And he looks, and what he realizes is the entire simulated world was in absolute chaos. There were fires, hurricanes, Polar ice caps are melting. It's global warming on steroids. Okay? And what he found out was, as he began to crunch numbers to figure out how in the world did this happen, because day after day, week after week, I've been conducting the same experiment, and what is different about today? And he realized, oh, that's the mistake I made. I left off .000127. And to put that into perspective, that is the amount of wind that is created from one flap of the wing from a butterfly. It became known in the science industry as the butterfly effect. And what Edward Lorenz teaches us is that the earth is not necessarily so fragile, no, that there is no such thing as something small, because something as seemingly insignificant as one flap of a butterfly's wing can alter global weather patterns and basically eradicate life on planet earth as we know it. It's called the butterfly effect. And he teaches us that there is no such thing as something too small that it is insignificant. And what I want to talk to you about today is something that seems to be fairly small. When I say the word contentment, perhaps maybe you think, oh, it's just being okay with the way things are. 
But as we will see in John chapter 6 in a moment, contentment is not lackadaisical. Contentment is not lazy. Contentment is a posture of the heart that allows us to protect the peace of God that has been deposited deep down inside each one of us as we contend for our breakthrough. The word content and the word contend come from the same word, which is a Latin word that means somebody paid your claim or somebody paid your bill. Contentment comes from the reality and knowing that God has already paid the price for what we're going to face one day. That's what contentment means, and that's where it comes from. And as a disciple of Christ, we have the privilege and the responsibility not only to believe what Jesus believes, but to believe how Jesus believes. For how we believe determines what we see. How do we know that? There are more electrical impulses that travel from the human brain to the optical nerve. It's not the other way around. So your eye does not tell your brain what it sees. Your brain tells your eye what it sees. So it would be like this. It would be like, um, let's say I fill this entire room with smoke, and I stick a big elephant on the platform. And one by one, we all get to take turns, and we can barely see what's in front of us. And so the instructions are, reach out your hand, touch the elephant, and then walk out of the room and write down what you experience, what, what you see, what you feel. Well, for those of you that walk up to the elephant and you touch the tusk, how many of you know your description of the elephant is something along the lines of, well, it's hard, it, it feels like marble, it, it's kind of pointy on the end, and what, what do you do when you grab the ear? The next person walks out, they don't grab the tusk, they grab the ear. It's a little bit flimsy, it reminds me of my golden doodle. It was slightly hairy, a little tough, kind of felt like the, the, the leather that maybe is, uh, makes up a football, but I can't, but it was, it was flimsy. What do you do when you touch the tail? Well, I walked out of there, and I touched the elephant, and I touched the tail in the wrong spot, and my hand stinks, right? So describe the elephant to me. Well, the elephant is hard and pointy, perhaps. The elephant is leathery and flimsy. Yeah. Man, elephants stink. Yes, they do. It all hinges on where you touch the elephant. Are you with me? And what can happen is our experiences in life fill the room with smoke. And we form opinions about what we're experiencing, and deception is deceptive. And remember, the mind's eye selectively perceives reality in order to do two things. Number one, to validate your past experiences, and secondly, to justify what you want. And what's beautiful about having a relationship with God is when we come before God, the smoke in the room clears, and we can see things as they really are. How many of you have heard the phrase, hindsight is twenty twenty? How many of you know that's not true? Because your understanding of the past is only as clear as your understanding of the past. There is only one perspective that is true, and that is God's. And contentment is crucial when it comes to possessing God's perspective on things. In the kingdom, it seems like the small things, the subtle things, are often the things that not only make a difference, they make the difference. 
We know that, for example, in Mark chapter 11, verse 23, Jesus makes this statement, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed, it will be cast into the midst of the sea. I remember when I was a new Christian, Allie, whom I'm married to, gave me a mustard seed, and I taped it in the Bible I was reading at that time, right by the verse of Mark 11. Mustard seeds are fairly small. And when you look at a mustard seed, you think there's no way something that small can have an impact. But according to the words of Jesus of Nazareth, they can have an impact. So in Mark 11, Jesus shifts the, the, the focus away from the size of our faith to the effectiveness of our faith. So in the kingdom, the, even if it's small, it doesn't mean it is insignificant. And contentment is another one of those things. Contentment seems small, but just because it seems small does not mean it's not powerful. When we contend for a breakthrough, I would suggest if we don't have contentment in our heart, our breakthrough can become an idol. Because being content and contending come from the same space. We are content because we know I will never face something that God has not already paid the price for. And yet, because we will never face something that God has never paid the price for, we contend so that the Lamb of God receives the reward of his suffering. Because at the end of the day, it's not our story, it's God's story. Are you with me? So, John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And then a great multitude followed Jesus because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with the disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And then Jesus, he lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad or there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, his disciples distributed them to the disciples and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. And so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So only this miracle, the miracle I just referenced, only this miracle and the resurrection of Jesus are mentioned in all four Gospels. And when God says something once, it's, it's important. When God says something four times, it's pretty important. And so, for example, why would the resurrection 
receive mention in each gospel? Well, according to, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, 19, the Bible says, if in this life you have hope in Christ, only you are to be pitied more than all others. And what, what it's saying is, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then this whole thing is a big joke. I thank God for the cross. I thank God for the resurrection. Because if Jesus just died for our sins and he wasn't raised from the dead, then Jesus is just a really cool teacher. But because of the resurrection, we have hope. And because of the resurrection, he ever lives to make intercession for the saints, right? So the resurrection is crucial to our faith. Thank God for the cross. But without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. There have been a lot of religious teachers who have died for their faith over the centuries. The fact that Jesus laid his life down for us is incredibly humbling and honor, honorable, and I thank God for it, but it means nothing if he's not raised. That's why all four Gospels mention it. So the resurrection and the miracle I just read are mentioned in all four Gospels. Now, we know that every word in the Bible is inspired by the Spirit. We know that because of 2 Timothy, for example, chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. So every word is inspired, but the chapter numbers are not. The verse numbers are not, and the headings in your Bible are not. So how many of you know the Holy Spirit did not inspire the words, Jesus feeds the multitude, Right? So in your Bible, it may say something like, Jesus feeds the 5,000, Jesus feeds the multitude, Jesus multiplies the bread, who knows? But what if this miracle is about so much more than that? What if Jesus feeding the multitude is like grabbing the ear of the elephant? And what if when we blow the smoke out of the room, we'll discover God is doing a whole lot more than what we initially thought? And... And what I want to look at here is something that seems so small, it's almost like the butterfly effect. It's so small, but it has such a profound impact. This is not a new idea, by the way. This is an idea that has been in the Bible since it was inspired, and we're just going to draw attention to it again. So in order to understand what the Bible means, we have to understand what it meant. So what's going on here? Jesus sends 12 disciples. He had more than 12 but he sends 12 disciples out on a little excursion. And he is about to send 70 disciples out to do the same. What are they doing? They're traveling into villages. They are um, seeing God heal people. They are seeing God demonstrate his kingdom through signs and wonders. And all of them came back, according to the gospel record, rejoicing and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So here's what's going on. Jesus is sending out Peter, James, John, and Judas, and everybody else. They're casting demons out of people. They're having a fairly good time. That They are seeing the kingdom of God demonstrated in an unmistakable way. That is what has just happened. They have just seen people healed or delivered from demonic torment. They get into a boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee, or the Romans called it the Sea of Tiberias. They get into this boat and they're traveling. And remember, the Sea of Galilee is about nine miles by four miles. So it's a little bit bigger, you know, than, your, than a fishing pond. I mean, they're traveling somewhere. And the Bible tells us, and I just read it, they're in the boat and they're coming to the shore, 
And Jesus sees this massive multitude. Where did the multitude come from? Because back then, they don't have Find My iPhone. Back then, nobody is tracking them. They have no idea where Jesus is going. They're, the, the sending of the 12 disciples created such a stir that there are people on the shore watching where the boat goes. We know that. You can read in Mark 6, verse 33. And actually, the Bible tells us that the people beat Jesus to the shore before they get there. Now, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a topographer, but I like maps and calculators. And here's what I discovered. That their journey is about four miles, and the people would have ran 10 miles to beat Jesus to the shore. So for those of you who like to run or for those of you who ever ever been into a boat, how many of you know the people ran fairly fast? They're not just, ah, what should we do today? Ah, I don't know. Let's figure out what's happening to Jesus in the boat. No, they're not meandering on the shore. They are running. Thousands of people are running. How many people? Well, 5,000 men because it says the men sit down. And we know back then women were discriminated against because of their gender And today, women are still, unfortunately, discriminated against because of their gender. I'm thankful for the progress we're making, but we still have progress to be made. But there are men, women, and children. They're running. They're running with their children to beat Jesus and his disciples to the shore. Have that in your mind. The disciples just cast demons out of people. That's what's going on. That's the context, or that is the background. And the Bible tells us in all four Gospels, in Matthew and Mark, it says they cross over the lake and they come to a desert place. In Luke, it says they come to a desert place belonging to Bethsaida. But in the Gospel of John, it does not say it is a desert place. Instead, this is how the place is described. It says there was much grass in the place. Is that a contradiction? Whenever something is mentioned in more than one gospel, to take the smoke out of the room and to see what's really going on, it's always a good idea to read the other accounts in the gospels. Are you with me? So why does John say there's much grass in the place and the other three gospel writers tell us it is either a desert place or a desert place belonging to Bethsaida? You can go there to this day. The, the modern name of the city is El Araj. It is a place that used to be a fishing village on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It is a place that is literally crisscrossed by streams, Irrigation canals and aqueducts, it is far from a desert. When you think of a desert, you think of sand and mirages and no water. That's not at all what this place is. This word desert that Matthew, Mark, and Luke use, it is not a a word that is used to describe a desert when it comes to a landscape. It is a word that is used to describe the emotions that humans often experience. So when Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the desert place, they're not saying Jesus is in the middle of Egypt with pyramids. 
They're saying there's something about their experience right now that is about to dictate what they see because what you believe determines what you see. People always say, well, seeing is believing. No, believing is seeing. And what we believe shapes what we see. They come to a desert place. They're at a place that is barren. The word can literally mean abandoned. It is not a place where no other human beings are because there are thousands of people running on the shore. There are other villages around this area. We know that because the Bible says one of his disciples respond, um, where do you want us to go get bread? Well, go, go to somebody that's close by to buy some bread. So it's describing a place where perhaps Jesus and his disciples come to a place that is barren, that is dry, even though there's plenty of water. And so it's a term that is basically saying what you need, you don't have enough of, and what you don't need, there's plenty of. Have you ever been there? It is a desert place. And what does Jesus see in the desert? What he sees is very different than what the disciples see. And we know what Andrew and Philip see because that's written down in the Gospel of John. The Bible says they approach the shore and Jesus sees the multitude. And Jesus is moved with compassion. I love that about Jesus. That when he looks at us, he is moved with compassion. In the crowd, this crowd is filled with people who are simply following Jesus to get another miracle. This crowd is filled with people who don't necessarily know who Jesus truly is. And yet, nonetheless, they're motivated to have Jesus meet a need. Does Jesus look at them and say, you know what, if you really loved me, you would? No. Does Jesus look at them and say, you need to clean up your life before I give you the time of day? No. Jesus is coming to a desert place. He is tired. We know that when you read the story in all four Gospels. And his initial need is compassion. Thank God for that. He's compassionate. In a dry and barren place where you know God is able to meet the need and you know that God is near enough to do something about it, sometimes we still feel dry and barren. And that's exactly what's going on here with the disciples. They have seen God heal people. They have cast demons out of people. And what does the text say? Jesus goes on. He is moved with compassion, and he says to them, hey, where are we going to buy enough bread so that everybody can eat? I love this. They're about to celebrate the Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover is a Jewish feast that commemorates what took place, I think it was in Exodus 12, where the death angel passes over the homes of the Hebrews and the firstborn of all of the Egyptian family perishes. It is an act of judgment. It is not an act of judgment because God was in a bad mood. It is an act of judgment because the wages of our sin is death. God simply, when judgment occurs, God simply keeps his word. God is not angry. He's not in a bad mood when judgment happens. He is keeping his word. And because he is such a good father, he lays out everything beforehand. They are celebrating the Passover. They are celebrating. They are supposed to pause and remember what they believe. Remember that you believe God is merciful 
so merciful that God is willing to insert his sovereign hand into time and space to alter circumstances because he loves you. And I don't know about you, but if I'm remembering the Passover and Jesus looks at me after I've just seen God heal people and just cast demons out of people, and Jesus sees a multitude that is facing an impossible situation, they are poor and starvation was rampant in first century Jerusalem. It's not as if these people just need a snack. They are, they are suffering under the, under the weight of food insecurity. They are hungry. They are facing an impossible situation. They're supposed to be in the midst of believing God can do anything. And what is their response? We don't have any food. We don't have any money. What do you mean feed everybody? What are we supposed to do with that? Do you see it? How many of you know it's possible to believe something, but what you believe, you really don't believe? Am I the only one that's humbled by that? Right? It's possible to believe something that you don't really believe. Hey, feed them. What do you mean feed them? And look at the response. The response is, Lord, where are we going to buy enough bread for these people to eat? Philip did not know where to get bread, even though the bread of heaven is standing in front of him. Andrew says, what we have isn't enough. And then all of a sudden, he grabs a little kid. Can you imagine the conversation? Like, we just saw God heal people. We just saw God cast demons out of people. And now Jesus wants us to get bread. Yeah, I think that's, that's a reasonable request, don't you think? Like, God can do anything. We're celebrating the Passover. Just let's find some bread. No, that's too hard. What are we going to do? Get the kid. <laughs> and so they grab the kid, put him front and center, and he has five loaves of barley bread. Barley was the bread of the poor. It is not a loaf of bread. It is like a pancake. Five loaves of barley bread and two small fish. You look, the word great is used two times in verse 2 and 5. It talks about the great multitude. And the word small is used to describe the resources they have. So again, they have plenty of what they don't need and not enough of what they do need. It seems like today we have plenty of what we don't need. Marriages are struggling. People are full of anxiety or depression. We have plenty of Instagram stories, though, don't we? We have plenty of Facebook lives. We have plenty of movies. We have plenty of games to watch, plenty of um, shopping excursions to go on. It seems like our lives have plenty of what we don't need, and when push comes to shove, what we don't need or what we do need is described as small. But remember, in the kingdom, there's no such thing as insignificant because of size. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, be removed, and it's cast into the midst of the sea. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, no, the bread and the fish you have may be small, but it's not small because in the kingdom, there's no such thing as small. Don't fall for the lie. In the kingdom, the butterfly effect is true too. And here's what takes place. Jesus is having a conversation about them finding enough um, bread and food to feed them. 
Their response is 200 denarii won't even basically take care of this. That's 200 days wages for a common laborer back in the day. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, who has just gotten off a four-mile boat ride, who is facing a multitude of probably 15,000, 18,000 people, he is facing an impossible task. What do you do when you face an impossibility? He is facing an impossible task. He is coming to the, quote, desert place. Jesus needs a break, too. We know that because he's about to go back up on the mountain by himself. He needs a break. How many of you know Jesus didn't just wake up every day and angels sprinkle fairy dust on him? Jesus went to sleep, too, right? He's a human being, and yet he's God. Jesus needs some space. And what do you do when you face an impossibility? What does Jesus do? Jesus does not pray. Now, I want to be clear. There are times when prayer is the appropriate response. And please don't reduce what I'm about to say to a formula. It's not about getting it right. You get it right whenever you look at him. Okay? But Jesus does not pray. Jesus does not rebuke the devil. Jesus does not bind hunger. What the Bible says Jesus does is so interesting. It says in verse 11, Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks. It would be like walking into the restaurant and the host looks at you. How many in your party today, sir? I see there are four with you. How many? Thank you. I take out my credit card. Uh, Pardon me? Thank you. Here. Why are you... Why are you paying the bill? You haven't even sat down yet. You haven't even ordered yet. It seems out of place to give thanks when nothing has happened. It seems out of place to give thanks when the need hasn't been met. It seems out of place to give thanks when what you have is small and the need is great. And that's the whole point. It is out of place. It's completely strange and it's ridiculous. And it makes all the sense in the world. He gives thanks. That word give thanks is one word, Eucharisto, where we get our word Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And this is what the word means, Eucharisto. It comes from two words, you, which is good, and charis, which is grace. What does Jesus do when he's at a desert place surrounded by an impossibility? Before he prays, before he binds the evil one, even though I'm not sure that he even does that ever. Before he does any of that, he stops good grace. There are thousands of hungry people in front of you. Before I address the multitude, good grace. When you face an impossibility, the logical response is good grace. It's a picture of contentment. It's what is about to happen, you've already paid the price for. So rather than being anxious about what's about to happen, I'm just going to pause because you're good. And I live in your grace. Good grace. You don't find any evidence in any gospel where Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish. One gospel says he blesses it and gives it to his disciples, but he gives thanks He gives them the loaves 
and the two fish, and God multiplies the bread and the fish as the disciples distribute it. For the longest time, I always thought Jesus takes the the basket of bread and fish, and he's like, you better do something, God. And all of a sudden, boom, God drops a container out of heaven, enough to feed a bunch of people. It's not at all what happens. Jesus takes his little barley pancakes and two small fish and breaks them into small pieces. Here, guys. And as they distribute it, it's multiplied, so much so they have 12 basketfuls left over. All because he said, good grace. After the multitude is fed, the disciples get into a boat, and you can read it for yourself in John 6. They get into a boat, and Jesus goes up by himself, and he's with God. And what happens is they're on the the sea, and the Bible tells us a storm breaks again, and it's dark. The Bible tells us that after they rode for about three or four miles, Jesus comes walking to them on the water at dark. It's interesting to me that God waited until it was dark to come. And it's interesting to me that God waited until they rode three or four miles before he came. Almost as if to say, guys, you can try and strive all you want. Jesus gets into the boat with them, and the Bible says immediately the boat arrives to its destination. Which is a reminder to me that when Jesus is in your boat, you always end up where you're supposed to be. Even when it's stormy and even when it's dark and you don't have a clue where you're going. The key is not to have a compass that never malfunctions. The key is to make sure that Jesus is in your boat. And it's always a good strategy to make sure he's in your boat before you launch from shore. But God is merciful because sometimes when we launch from the shore, after striving for three or four miles, he still comes because he's good and he has grace. And here's what I want you to catch. After Jesus walks on the water, which is a miracle, and after the boat, immediately after Jesus gets into the boat, arrives to the shore exactly where they're supposed to be, the Holy Spirit, who does not inspire the chapter numbers, who does not inspire the verse numbers, and he does not inspire the the headings, but he does inspire the word. This is how the Holy Spirit describes the whole location where all this took place. I'd like to read it to you. John chapter 6, verse 21. Then they willingly received Jesus into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. The Holy Spirit does not describe the place as they came to the place where Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish. 
It is not known as the place where Jesus fed the multitude. It is known as the place where Jesus said, good grace. I would suggest to you that the miracle is so much more than Jesus feeding a multitude. The miracle is what Jesus teaches us, which is when we face an impossibility and we find ourselves even in a barren desert place, even when we have no need to do so, we pause, and from a place of contentment, as we contend for the breakthrough, we acknowledge, God, you're good, and I thank you for your grace. If we don't have contentment in our heart, our breakthrough perhaps can become an idol. When contentment resides within our heart, it's unstoppable, because at the end of the day, God is good, and his grace is near. So I pray, God, right now for those who are facing impossibilities. I pray right now for those who have a need and they're not quite sure how it's going to be met. I pray right now, God, for those who find themselves at the barren place, the dry place, the arid place. And they believe that, God, you are able to meet the need. They believe perhaps that you are willing to even meet the need. But, God, deep down inside, sometimes what we believe still needs a little help from heaven. And sometimes we can watch you perform a miracle, but when you ask us a simple question, hey, Heath, why don't you get them some bread? I can come up with plenty of excuses. Where am I going to get the bread? We don't have enough money. And I begin to, we begin to reduce what you do in the earth based on what we see. I pray, God, that from a, po- a place of belief, belief in you, what we see at work will change. What we see at home will change. What we see when we pray will change. Because from a place of belief, we not only believe, but we know that you are good and your grace is sufficient for your power is made perfect in weakness. I want to ask two questions. The first question is this. If you're in the room today, perhaps like the disciples, you've been living life on your own. I'm not asking if you come to this church. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm asking, are you in a boat, rowing and striving, doing your own thing, and God is nowhere to be found? The good news is God is not angry with you. The the good news is God is not saying, I told you so. The good news is, like Jesus did, He is walking toward you in the midst of your situation, your storm, even in the darkness. He is coming toward you. But you have a responsibility, even though you have an opportunity. Your responsibility is to make sure that Jesus knows He is welcome in your boat. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? And this morning, if you don't have a relationship with God, and you would say, Heath, remember me in prayer, I want to have a deep connection with God. I want to know God personally. I don't want to live life on my own. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up really quick. Up, 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 up. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate your honesty. Anybody else? Thank you, sir. 
You can put it down. I want to ask a second question. If today you're facing something and you would say, you know what? I have been praying. I have been fasting. I have been contending. I'm doing everything I know to do, and yet I still have a need. And you believe God's Spirit is whispering to you, hey, just thank me. Just just give thanks. As you contend from a place of contentment, and if God is whispering to you, right where you're at, I'm going to ask you to just begin to give thanks to God. Go ahead. Lord, I thank you that you've been near. Even at times I've accused you of being far away. God, I thank you that you're loving, even though at times I've assumed you were indifferent. God, I thank you that you are powerful, even though I do not see you. I thank you that you care and you know me by name, even though at times it seems like I've been forgotten. God, I ask you to blow the smoke out of the room for all of your sons and daughters and that they will see you and that they will see their situation for who you really are and for what it really is. If today you would like to spend some time with God in prayer, I would encourage you before you slip out to just find a space up here. Maybe you need to give thanks for your job. Maybe you need to give thanks for things going on in your home or your family. Maybe you need to give thanks for some of the things that have been um, aloof and seemed far away as you've laid awake at night and prayed and asked God to help. Maybe from a place of contentment, God will contend for your breakthrough because he has already paid the price for everything you will ever face. If you need to do that before you slip out, I'd encourage you to find a place up here. And if you want someone to pray with you, people will come and do so. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And it is my prayer that you will feel the warmth from God's fiery, loving eyes as you walk out of this place today. To the glory of God, in Jesus' name, I ask it humbly and declare it boldly. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.